So we are um, starting tonight our Inspired series on these Sunday evenings, and it's great to see so many of you out. And um, I trust that it's going to be a really, really helpful series, uh, morning and evening. So um, the evening services will be recorded and uploaded um, if you miss any or if you can't see them because so the, they're quite visual. And the same with the morning sessions. If, you're not, if you miss the mornings or you can't get to the mornings, you can watch those online as well. So we'll be doing different things. In the morning, we're looking at the what and the why and the how of Scripture. This morning, we were talking about the Bible being a place of education, a place of equipping, and a place primarily of encounter that in the Scriptures we meet Jesus. And the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation point us to Jesus. So um, we're going to be talking through the what of the Bible and the, and the how and the why. So the moving elements of this campaign will be that. And then in the evening, uh, using this, um, which Matt has, lovely, has so kindly made for us, based on the Bible Society's Bible course, what we're going to be doing in the evenings is we're going to be looking together at the story of the Bible, the great sweep of the Bible, that the Bible is, is story, the Bible is literature, the Bible is revelation. But in the evenings particularly, uh, we're going to be looking from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to be looking at how it all fits together. So we'll be looking at the different elements of the Bible. And hopefully, by the end of our series, you'll, you'll have a much kind of clearer grasp of the different elements and moving parts of the Bible. So that's what we're doing in the evenings. And then in our small groups in the week, uh, we're going to be studying a course with Pete Gregg, a video course called Lectio, which is... Uh, based on sacred reading, Lectio Divina, it's an ancient practice of reading the Bible in quite a simple way in that you read a passage and then you meditate on it and then you pray over it and then you contemplate it. You contemplate how you're going to put it into practice. And so every day on you, our YouTube channel and uh, on our website, there's going to be a daily reading and a video devotional from different people in the church. And you can follow that with... The notes in your book as well. Every day there's a daily reading in here and a video devotional. So throughout the 42 days of this uh, time together on Inspired, we'll be working our way from Genesis to Revelation through the great story of the Bible on these Sunday evenings and on your daily readings. So hopefully by the end of that, some lights will come on and you'll get some great um, oversight of what we're looking at. So to start with tonight, I'm, I'm going to be looking at the book of Genesis. We, we considered this morning that um, we considered this morning that the Bible, the Holy Bible, simply means Biblia, um, from the Greek Biblia, which means books. The Bible is a library of books, 66 in total, um, that make up the Holy Bible, the sacred books of the Bible. From Genesis, the Old Testament, right through to the writings and the Psalms, through the prophets, and into the New Testament, the Gospels and the letters, and then finally to Revelation. So we're going to be taking you through this library, these different types of books, and how they fit together, and how they all point us to Jesus. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So this is the start of our story. This is um, creation. And the book of Genesis. And uh, we're going to be primarily looking at this tonight, at the book of Genesis, the beginnings. 
how the Bible starts, and then we'll work our way through some of the other books on the other evenings. In the Lord of the Rings, any fans of the Lord of the Rings here? Uh, it's, um, it's, it's something I've never read, but I want to read, but, um, and I will one day. But Sam in Lord of the Rings asks the question and says, I wonder what sort of a tale we have fallen into. I wonder what sort of a tale we have fallen into. There is a story and they've been swept into it in Lord of the Rings. And they're trying to understand what it is. Now life is a story. Life is sometimes comedy, isn't it? Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes life is tragedy. Sometimes it is soap opera, but it is a story. And one of the things that people ask so often when they look at the world we live in, if a philosopher were to look at our world, would be perhaps, perhaps first of all, why is the world so, so beautiful? I, uh, Louis Armstrong sang, didn't he? I, and I think to myself, what a, what a wonderful world. I look at the world around me and I I see, I can't remember the words of that song, but I see all of these things and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And sometimes we look at the world and we think, how come the world is so beautiful? Where did this beauty come from? Uh, we look at the rolling hills, we look at uh, the crashing waves, we look at the sunset, and sometimes we're, we're just moved by the beauty of the world that we live in. But sometimes a philosopher, we would look at the world and we would ask the question, and we might look at the world this week and what's happening in the Middle East. And we would say, why is the world so bad? Why is the world so evil? How can human beings be capable of doing some of the things that they do? And sometimes we look at the world and we think, why is the world so beautiful and so wonderful? And sometimes we look at the world and we think, why is the world so bad? And the question that people often ask when they come up against Christianity and the, and the Christian faith is, how come there's so much suffering? How can a good God allow so much suffering? And we have to look at these two things and ask ourselves, how is this story made up? How is the world so good and so bad? Madeleine Lengel said that all of life is a story. And this is helpful to know. But sometimes it feels like we are holding pages torn out of a book. And we're missing the bigger picture. How do we fit into this story, this bigger story? How do we make sense of life? And these Sunday nights, we want to look what that story is, the great story, the epic that is the Bible. What has been called the meta-narrative of Scripture. The story that ultimately all other stories mimic. What we want to do is to follow the great story of the Bible. How it all fits together and the part that we play in it. And context is, is everything in the Bible. We need to read each passage, each book of the Bible, as it fits into the whole story. Scott McKnight says, like Wikipedia, that every book of the Bible is a wiki story that fits into the great story of the Bible. So if you're reading in the Bible, you're reading the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel fits into the great narrative, the great sweeping narrative of scripture. It's a wiki story. It's a, a tributary that leads into this great river of the story of the Bible. And if you understand that story and the trajectory of it, you'll understand Daniel better when you read it. And when you come to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are wiki stories. They are part of this great narrative of the Bible. 
we, we get to, we get to these, uh, the gospel elements. We get to this part of the story of, of the Bible um, where Jesus comes and uh, the stories of his, his, his birth and his death and his resurrection. And it's part of the great story. Of course, we get, we get to the end of the story as well in Revelation in the Bible, and, uh, which is yet to come much of it, and the end of time, the consummation of time. What is our ultimate hope in life and in death, and what is the end, what is the end of the story? How does it all finish? We're told in Scripture how it finishes. And so this timeline, what it will do is it will take us through the great sweep of the story of the Bible. And each book of the Bible is a wiki story that leads into the great story and the great narrative. And so we have Genesis. And then we have here um, the Exodus and uh, the, the people of God going down to Egypt. And then coming up out of the land of Egypt and into uh, the time of the judges and the kings. Um, here, the judges and... The kings, they are um, here on our, on our timeline. And then we uh, have the time of the story in the Bible where the, Bible, where the kingdom of Israel divides into the northern kingdom, which is this part here, and the southern kingdom. And all of the prophets that will uh, prophesy uh, during that time of the, of the exile uh, will be part of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then, uh, of course, we have the, the acts of the apostles and the birth of the church. And, um, and then we have the time of, of, of the letters as well. Uh, all the letters that are written that you were ordering before. But we will be looking into this great story. But our story tonight begins, like all good stories, with once upon a time. In the beginning. All good stories start with once upon a time, with in the beginning. That's how all the stories begin. Our story starts this way. Genesis means beginnings. A book of two halves. And what we're going to be looking at tonight as we look at Genesis is creation and covenant. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis are all about the creation. And then the rest of the book of Genesis, 12 to 50, is all about covenant through one chosen family. And we'll be looking at this global story and how it focuses in on Abraham and a covenant that God makes with him. That is the beginning of the story. And often we, we also need to remember that when we're looking at the book of Genesis, we're looking at a, one of the oldest books in the Bible. Uh, 1800 BC was the time, the Bronze Age, that it was written. And it's often assumed uh, that modern science contradicts the Bible, that there is a contradiction, there's a, a clash, and either you can be scientific and you can have a scientific mind, or you can go with the theology and you can go with Christianity, but that the two don't fit together somehow. But actually what is happening with science and with theology is that they're answering very different questions. So theology and Christianity answers the why questions, and science and modern science answers the how questions. So how old is the universe, for example? How, um, how do certain things work or how have certain things uh, come about? The Bible answers the deeper why questions. Why did God create the world? Why is there good and evil that science cannot answer? Why am I here? Why do I exist? What is the purpose of life? And we find those answers in the scriptures. 
and uh, the two do not contradict each other. Some of the greatest minds throughout history have been scientists and Christians. One of those today is uh, Dr. John Lennox, Professor John Lennox at Oxford University, Professor of Mathematics and Philosophy, and argues from the scientific side, but also the biblical side, and how the two fit together. So let's read the beginning of our story, Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3, the start of our story that we'll be looking at in these evenings. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Genesis begins with a couple of assumptions. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. It is logical to say that nothing comes from nothing. Everything has a cause. If I'm a parent and I'm at home and I hear a big bang upstairs, I say, what was that? And then a little voice comes back, nothing. But of course it was something, something caused that big bang. Something caused it to happen. And big bangs, they don't just happen, there is a cause. And, and the assumption of the Bible, in the beginning, God. There is no cause before God. In the beginning, God was. And this God created everything. That's the great story of scripture. That's where we start. We're not told how he did it. And we're not told when he did it. Science can argue over that. And of course, whether you believe in a literal six-day creation or creation over many years, whether you believe in partial evolution within species or not, there are different ways and scientific arguments around all of those things. But what the Bible is unequivocal about is that in the beginning, God created the world. God created. God was the designer, the intelligent designer, the one behind it all. And Genesis is how God takes a dark chaos and he turns it into a beautiful world. And that's what God does, like a potter with a lump of clay. The question Genesis invites us to ask is not how old, but what are you making and why are you making it? And God, in the beginning, creates from this formless void, he creates something beautiful and something wonderful. And that's what God does. God takes chaos and darkness and he puts light into it and beauty and form. And he still does that today in people's lives. He takes things that are chaotic and broken and formless and he sculptures them into something beautiful and something amazing. The scene God creates is by the power of his word, beauty out of chaos. The scene begins in darkness, darkness over the deep, the hush of a symphony, of the hush before a symphony begins. That's what we have at the start of the Bible, the silence over the darkness, over the waters, the hush before the symphony begins. And suddenly a word is spoken and there is light. And feel God's happiness in the story, the creation story, the astonishing world that God creates. Picture the most beautiful scenes on earth that you have ever seen. The most beautiful landscapes, the most beautiful things you have ever experienced. Picture it all on the day that it was born and how beautiful it was. 
animals and birds and fish of the sea. And the angels shouted for joy. It's an astonishing world we live in. And we have grown dull to it. It's as wild and as beautiful as any fairy tale. We have peacocks. And we have butterflies. And we have elephants. And God created them all. A world made for romance. Creation is a great work of art. And God is the great artist. And on day six, we read in the book of Genesis, the beginnings of our story. Once upon a time, there is the climax of God's creative and artistic brilliance. As God creates human beings. We are the climax. We are what God made. And after he made it, we are the ones about whom he said, it was very good. And God made man in his own image. It was very good what God created. God really loves people. God really loves what he has created. We are his creatures. We are made in the image of God. The Imago Dei. We are made in his image. And we read that moment where God decided to create us. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when we read, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Seems like God is talking to himself. Let us make man in our own image. And the fact is that we were made for relationship. God seems to be having this conversation with himself, let us. And here we have the first hint in the Bible of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our own image, male and female, both made in the image of God. Meister Eckhart says, we are born out of the laughter of the Trinity. We're made for relationship, for this is how we were made. We were made out of relationship. We were made in the image of God. We were made in the Trinitarian image to be like God. We are hardwired for a relationship with God and with one another. We were not made for isolation. And in Genesis chapter 2, God makes the physical shell of a human body. But then he does something. He breathes life into that body. He breathes his breath, and the word is ruach, which means spirit. The spirit of God is breathed into human form. And like no other being, not like the animals or the fish of the sea or the birds of the air, human beings carry in them the spirit, the breath of God, the ruach of God. God's personal spirit entering humanity. We were made for this relationship with God. We are made also as God's representatives. In Eden, which Genesis uh, tells us about, this beautiful creation that God has created, the animals, the trees, the plants, uh, the seas, the skies. In, in all of this, God 
commissions human beings to be his co-workers, to fill the world with beauty. And all is well with the world. And Louis Armstrong can sing, I say to myself, what a wonderful world. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are confronted with temptation in the form of a serpent. And this great battle takes place in heaven. And they've been given everything to enjoy but God says, you must not, you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will surely die. Why does every story have a villain? Because ours does. Our story, the great story on which every other story is built has a great villain. The serpent Satan whispers half-truths and asks the question, can God really be trusted? You cannot trust the heart of God, can you? Evil was lurking in the garden and we believed it and paradise was lost. And mankind began to die. And to this day, we are still bombarded with temptation and with adverts that promise us fulfillment outside of God. We're still told and intimated to that we cannot really trust God to be good. We're told on social media and on other channels that we are missing out somehow. And that we need more than God can give us. And winter comes to Narnia. And if ever you have been to a funeral. And if ever you have faced death. And if ever you have buried a loved one you will have felt it was not meant to be this way. It was not meant to be this way. This is so wrong. And Genesis shows us that the world is no longer the way that it was supposed to be. It is both beautiful, but it is now flawed. And even now, right at the story, at the start of the story, at the genesis of the story, even now God shows us his love for a rebellious people that have turned their back on him and disobeyed him and turned their own way. He comes with a stunning promise in the face of humankind's rebellion. God promises, even in Genesis 3.15, even at the start of our story, he promises salvation. He promises a Messiah. He promises a rescuer, a rescue plan. And God says in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Even now at the start of our story, God is coming up with a plan of rescue and salvation, speaking, as we said this morning, like every book, every scripture points to Christ, speaking now, pointing to Jesus, to the Messiah, the one that will crush Satan's head, the one who will come and bruise his heel, speaking of Jesus. Even in Genesis, we're looking for Jesus. Every great story has a rescue. All the great stories that we read and have a rescue. Maximus comes into Rome. Aslan is the great rescuer in Narnia. Luke Skywalker comes and rescues the people from Darth Vader and 
the terrible empire. But our story, the story on which all stories are based, has a rescue. God comes looking for fallen mankind. Someone will come who will bring salvation, who will crush evil, who will restore hope to the world. And right at the beginning of the Bible, we get a glimpse of the coming Messiah. And so God, in his righteousness and in his judgment, the Bible says, because mankind disobeys him and turns and takes the fruit from the tree and disobeys the command not to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, God must judge rebellion and sin has its consequences and mankind is cast out of Eden and hides from God. And the human race begins to spread out, as we read in the story of the Bible, into Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, more or less, in its, in its region, and in, in its area. And Mesopotamia, in this area of the world, is known as the cradle of civilization. And evil continues to spread. This infection in humankind spreads, and humankind is infected. And the next major event that we read about is the catastrophic flood of the earth that covers the, the, the known earth. God cannot look upon the evil of mankind and the sin that has spread throughout humanity. And it's as if he presses the reset button. But once again, God's mercy triumphs over judgment as he judges what is happening with mankind in the spread of sin and evil. Noah is uh, brought forth and their ark and the rainbow and they become symbols of hope for mercy over judgment. God intentionally preserves Noah and intentionally preserves this family and the animals from the flood. And at the height of the flood we read that the waters covered the surface of the earth in an echo of Genesis and the start of creation. The waters covered the surface of the earth in the same phrase as we read in Genesis. And there is a reset, if you like, a washing of creation as the whole earth is covered by flood, as the whole earth is destroyed and, and brought to nothing apart from this rescue of Noah. And in Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, it's as if God recommissions humanity as he speaks the same command to Noah as he spoke to Adam and Eve. And he says, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And there is a restart, a, a refreshing, a new start, a new Genesis after this has happened. But our condition is revealed Human condition is revealed again by what happens next. Noah gets blind drunk, exposes himself, is naked. The world has been given a wash, but something is wrong on the inside. And the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And the last major event of our story at the beginning, Genesis 1 to 11, the creation account, is... The, the building of the Tower of Babel, where mankind decides we will make a name for ourselves. We'll build this great Tower of Babel from which we get the word Babel, confusion. And mankind is not in harmony with God and decides to compete with God. And God curbs human rebellion. And in Genesis 11 verse 7 we read, that even with all their great creativity, humanity builds this high tower. God still has to come down to look at that tower. 
to look at our tower and the babble and the confusion. Humanity, the human family is fragmented in that moment. And we have lived ever since with the consequences, with wars and racism and French and German lessons at school as we all had to learn and speak different languages, as the spread of humanity and the fractionalization of humanity. So when the philosopher asks why the world is so good, the answer is gen in Genesis is God made it so good. This creator God made it so beautiful. The beautiful gardener must have a beautiful and a creative gardener. But when the philosopher asks why is the world so bad, Genesis points to human rebellion and the consequences of this. In Genesis 1 to 11, at the start of our story, we have the heights and the depths, the beauty and wonder of creation, the repeated tragedy of rebellion and fall. And from Genesis 12 onwards, the second half of our first book of the Bible, we have something alongside creation that is called covenant. And this global story that we're telling and seeing becomes personal. It's like in one of those movies where you have a, a, a great scene, like a James Bond movie, where you have this great kind of scene, this kind of global reach, and then it hones in on this one person and this one person that's going to change things. We move from the global to the individual in our story in Genesis 12 onwards. Genesis 1 to 11 is our creation story and the spread of mankind. But then from Genesis 12 to the end of Genesis, we have the covenant story, this, the dealing of God with one family that will change uh, the direction of the earth and the people on the earth. And this one person in Genesis 12 is called Abraham. Abraham who lives in Mesopotamia. And God intends to fix creation by making a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. An agreement. Now, a covenant is one of those biblical words that we use a lot, but we find hard to define or understand. But a covenant is simply an agreement that is made that is legally binding. So it is relationship and law in together. Like a covenant of marriage is a relationship between two people that is legally binding, that has a legal undergirding of it. So a covenant is a mixture of two things. It's relationship and it's law. And God came and he made a covenant with one family, with one person, with Abraham. And, that, and the rest of Genesis is about God's interaction with this family and how that unfolds in the rest of our story. Abraham is followed by Isaac, his son. And Isaac is followed by Jacob, who is renamed in the biblical story to call him Israel. And Israel has 12 sons who then become the 12 tribes of Israel. And, uh, and the story progresses. So we have Abraham, who God makes a covenant with. And then we have Isaac. And then we have Jacob. And then we have Jacob's 12 sons, Israel's 12 sons, and the famous son of all, the one that with a multicolored coat called Joseph. And this was all in about 1800 BC. And Genesis 12, verses 1 and 3, is where we'll pick the story up. And the Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. 
and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is a pivotal moment where the global becomes personal, where God picks out this man, Abraham, and makes this agreement with him and says, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And there's three amazing promises in this covenant. You see, we're looking here at the Old Covenant. We're looking here at the Old Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This is where it starts. And there are three great promises in this Old Covenant, this Old Testament between God and Abraham. First of all, a great nation. Abraham means father of many. And God promises Abraham that his offspring will be more than the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. God says, I'm going I'm to make a great nation out of you, Abraham. I'm going I'm to give you offspring more than the stars that you can see, more than the sand on the shore. I'm going to multiply you. And secondly, God promises Abraham a promised land, which becomes from Mesopotamia as they move into the land of Canaan, it becomes what is known as modern-day Israel, the promised land that God promises to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you this land. And thirdly, a global blessing. A great nation, a promised land, a global blessing. Every human family will be blessed through this one family. And that includes every single one of us. When I was a child at Sunday school, we used to sing, Father Abraham, with these crazy actions, had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Clap your hands, shake your legs, do something, I don't know what. But we are all sons and daughters of Abraham. We all descend from Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. God promises him a great nation, a promised land, a global blessing. And God has a plan for the whole of creation. And the rest of the Bible is an outworking of these three promises. This covenant made with Abraham in Genesis. The Bible is divided into this old covenant, the Old Testament, and the new covenant, the New Testament. So in Genesis 16, verses 1 to 2, we hear how God starts to work this out. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So Abraham and Sarah are struggling to conceive. And yet God has promised Abraham that through his offspring, all the world will be blessed. And yet they can't seem to have children. So she says, Sarah's wife, Sarai, says to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave, Hagar. And perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. I often wonder when I read that story, it's like, that's one of those trick questions, isn't it, really, for a husband, go sleep with my, go sleep with my, my uh, slave girl. And Abraham agreed to what, so, oh, all right then. <laughs> but Abraham and Sarah lose patience with God and with God's promises. They're still childless in their 80s. And Ishmael is born from Hagar. So Hagar is Sarah's slave woman. Abraham sleeps with her. Ishmael is born and tradition has it then that Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations. And so from Ishmael's line comes the Arab nations and from uh, Isaac who will be born to Abraham and Sarah comes the Jewish uh, lineage. 
So, and all of the three major religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, see Abraham as their father. And much of the conflict and tensions in the Middle East that we see today stem from this moment. And from the impatience of Abraham and Sarai, and them disobeying God and doing something they shouldn't have done. And this lineage was developed from which we see so much conflict over the many, many years. And so Abraham and Sarah are getting old and they still haven't had a child and they laugh at God's promises. In Genesis 21, a miracle happens and Isaac is born and Isaac means laughter. And God always keeps his promises and his timing is always perfect. And in your life, God's timing is perfect, even when it seems that it isn't. And even when it seems we have to wait for God to move or to act, God is moving and God has promised and God will fulfill his covenant promises to Abraham and Sarah. And they've tried to preempt him. And yet, uh, ultimately, his promise is fulfilled. Isaac is born. God has not la lost track of time. And despite these moments of doubt that Abraham has, he is still described in the Bible as a man of faith. He's a man of faith. And in Genesis 22, as the story progresses, God tests Abraham and he asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah. And Abraham trusts God and he trusts God that God has a great purpose and yet he's willing to obey him in what seems a very strange command. It's a very strange story that God would tell Abraham to kill his son. But Abraham takes Isaac up onto Mount Moriah and we have this great scene and Isaac's like, where's the sacrifice? Father, what's happening here? Why are we building an altar? Where's this? Who, what are we going to kill? And Abraham says to Isaac in Genesis 22 verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And in some traditions, Moriah is the same place as Golgotha or Calvary. But God did not have to, uh, Abraham did not have to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah because centuries later, God would. God would provide a lamb. God would provide a sacrifice. And even in this moment, in this act, in Genesis, we have a pointer again towards the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. God will provide the Lamb, my son. And God will provide a sacrifice. God will sacrifice his son on the Mount of Calvary and Golgotha. Abraham and Isaac point us to Jesus and to the great truth of the gospel in John 3.16. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The rest of Genesis is the story of a nation emerging from this one family. From the covenant made with Abraham. And a key word that we find throughout the story is the, is the sense of God choosing, God electing. We have Abraham and we have Ishmael and Isaac. And, and Isaac is the one that is chosen by God. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And even though Esau is the firstborn, Jacob is the one chosen 
by God. And then we have the 12 sons that are born and, and Joseph is the favored one. Yet ultimately Judah will be chosen as the one from whom is, comes the lineage of Jesus Christ. There's favoritism if you know the story or you remember the story of, of Joseph is one of these sons but he's Jacob's favorite somehow. And he shows favoritism towards Joseph and he puts on him a multicolored coat of many colors. And you'll see it on the, uh, the West End. And Joseph is taken down to Egypt as a slave where he becomes the prime minister. And he, and he delivers the people. Abraham's great-grandson is in charge of the world's greatest economy at a time of great famine. And we read about it in Genesis 41, 56 and 57. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. What a picture of the early promise to Abraham. Through your offspring, all families on earth will be blessed. And Joseph gives us, again, an ultimate glimpse of Jesus, points us towards the Savior, Jesus. Election, God doesn't pick Joseph, God picks Judah as the one through whom will come the lineage of Jesus Christ. Jesus was from the line of Judah, one of the 12 sons of Israel or Jacob, the bad boy of the bunch. The Messiah's family tree is one of misfits and miscreants. Jesus came for those who are screwed up and who need forgiveness. People like Judah and people like you and me. This £10 note here carries an image on it. Still the image of our former queen in this one. We were made in the image of God. That's what Genesis tells us. We carry in our DNA the image of God. That's the story. That's where we come from. That's how we were made. And yet we have sinned, the Bible tells us. And we have screwed up in a big way. Our lives are messed up in so many ways. And, and the world is messed up in so many ways. But this... This is not worthless. This still carries on it the image of God. And God can make something beautiful out of any screwed up life. Jesus came, the Bible says, to make us a new creation. To make something out of our broken humanity. And the story will end in redemption and restoration and the consummation at the end of a new heavens and a new earth where all will be made perfect where there will be no more crying and no more pain and no more brokenness but in the meantime right from the beginning right from the beginning of the story God has planned, has planned our redemption and our restoration and because of Jesus this can be our story Genesis, creation, and covenant 
And through Jesus, through Jesus, we can enter into a covenant relationship with God, which is what we were made for. And whatever has happened in our past, and whatever has screwed us up, we can become new creations. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. That is the beginning of our story. And what the Bible will do as we trace our way through it, through the Exodus, through the times of exile, through the times where the prophets came and spoke to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, as it comes through to the New Testament and the Gospels and the birth of the church and the consummation of the church, what we will trace over these coming weeks in this great story, this great narrative that we have fallen into, as Sam says in The Lord of the Rings, this tale, it makes sense of the world that we live in. Why is the world so beautiful and so wonderful? Because God made it that way. Why is the world so messed up and so evil? Because we rebelled and turned away from him, humankind. But God has always had and always will have a plan of redemption. And this image of God that is upon us and within us, this relationship for which we were made, will be restored. God has made a plan. God will send and has sent a Messiah. And we'll find out about that throughout the rest of the story. And in each element of this story, this great library of books, this holy Bible, we will find it all points to Jesus. It all points to the Messiah. It all points to him and our relationship with him. So I hope that you're going to be inspired through this series, the morning series and the evening series. I hope that you're going to really enjoy uh, seeing the great sweep of this meta-narrative, this great story but that you will find yourself in it. As I was saying this morning, this is a place of encounter to meet Jesus. And that's what we're going to do, hopefully, in this inspired series. I'd love to pray for you as we kick off this series. So let's pray together. Lord, you are a God that has made us and that loves us and that sees what you've made is very good. We thank you, God, that even from the beginning of the story, your mercy triumphed over judgment. We thank you for the promise of a Messiah, one who would come and crush the serpent's head. We thank you, God, that through these flawed human beings, Abraham and Noah, and on through to Joseph and Judah, and the stories of the Bible that we see traced through all of that God's covenantal plan and promises, which will ultimately be fulfilled in a new covenant in Jesus and with and through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have made us for relationship with you. You are a relational God. Father, we thank you for this great sweep, this great story. We pray that, Lord, as we contemplate it and find ourselves in it, that ultimately we will find you, Jesus Christ, and our relationship with you. May it be renewed and refreshed as we go through this series together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? And uh, we're pretty much coming to the close of our service. We're going to sing together as we close out our service tonight.
Don't forget to dig in from tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning our devotionals begin, our daily devotionals. So we'll be starting with the story of Genesis. And you see my pretty mug on the video tomorrow if you dial in. And, uh, and we'll do the first video devotional. And then every day someone different will come and take you through these devotionals that are in your book. If you don't have a book, we have run out. Over 500 of these have gone. Um, but we will have more next week, so um, you can order yours, pre-order yours, or I'll come and get it next week if you don't have one yet. So uh, let make sure you get a copy of that.